welcome to Cross Court, a quasi-tennis podcast. I'm Ethan Normandy, or I will be in like five days when I get married. So. Uh, and I am Jesse Feigenbaum. Very, very nice to be a part of this with you, Ethan, and congratulations yeah. in advance. Yeah, this is a weird time to be doing this, but it's the end of the year, and I figured like, I, I, I texted Jesse like, I texted you a couple weeks ago, I think it was, to say like in the middle of the night, I was like, I want to do a tennis podcast because I think like Roland Garros was just about to start. And I was like, it's never been this. It reminds me of like this year kind of reminded me at least that, that period of this period of, of this year reminded me of like, because I'm a Potter fan when uh-huh. Deathly Hollows came out at the exact same within a week of the Order of the Phoenix movie coming out. Okay. And it was like, I've never seen Potter mania that crazy in my life. Okay. And to have the U S open, within a week of Roland Garros or within days of Roland Garros, if someone had told you that was going to happen a year ago, you wouldn't believe them. No. And even getting closer to the date, I still couldn't believe it. I, I, I mean, I don't know if you want to get into specifics right now, but I think that that was really just a poorly, uh, oh, poorly yeah. timed sequence of events. And I think that- uh, Oh, sure, yeah. That was, so this was like a horror movie version of one for, for me when, when, when Hallows and Order of the Phoenix came out. Of that was fun <laughs> chaos. This was like, no, I agree with you. It was, and like, like not that I'm going to get into the politics too much of it because it's, mm-hmm. public health shouldn't be political. Right. But um, yeah, right. I think the fact that they were, you know, clearly more lenient than New York was, at least when I say New York, I mean the USTA and the Beijing King Tennis Center. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I feel like it was a little, I found myself being more nervous during Roland Garros for like something bad to happen. Right. Then you're in New York. And of course, Zverev happened. When it comes to public health, probably the biggest thing, the biggest pandemic-related story out of Roland Garros was Zverev. Right. um, Who decided to tell people, to tell the press after he lost that, oh, by the way, I'm sick as a dog, basically. Right. And I can barely breathe through this mask. That that should, that match should have never happened, but that's right. And, and I think like the thing with that was like, they didn't, I know that they were testing people all the time. They weren't doing temperature checks. Right. So I think clearly you have to, I mean, as long as this is going on, it shouldn't just be tests that should be mandated. It should be temperature checks that are mandated because otherwise clearly some players are not going to tell you if they have a fever because they're not going to think it's a big deal. Right. Right. The and the competitors in them, I mean, right now, again, not to really get into the politics of yeah. things, but I think that, um, you know, because you could be not only asymptomatic, um, but I mean, if you do say, I mean, we're right now in, in a very sort of health conscious uh, society and rightfully so, um, you don't know anymore if you have the sniffles and you wake up, if what, what that could be. Right. Um, yeah, I heard people say like, oh, you know, how many times have we had a fever, you know, and you've played anyway, you know, Serena had the flu and she won Roland Garros with the flu. Right. You know, five years ago, I'm like, yeah, I know, but we're not living in regular flu times. Like, it's I agree. Just the way it is. Like, obviously, yes, before a fever, at the most, you know, the chances of it meaning something fatal was right. slim. No one thought, you know, now it's higher because the, the, the mortality rate, it's already been, obviously, we know it's higher for COVID than the flu this year. Um, by the end of the year, it'll probably be, I think they said, the third leading cause of death, like, next to stroke or something. It's horrifying. Yeah, so so that did obviously that affected tennis, and I think I, that's probably sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, even from the perspective, if you take the health element aside, right, you take that out of it, and you think, boy, by by you know the, the French Open organi- organizers not really budging on that date, and by choosing to hold it like what what was it two weeks after, three weeks after, whatever it was. Yeah. Um, I mean, right there, you're going to have people that are going to make the effort. You're going to have players that are going to to, to make a, a conscious decision not to partake in uh, one tournament like we saw with Rafa choosing to obviously play the French Open. Right. I mean, it's just, it's but too much gonna, strain on people's bodies. Right. I mean, right. which is, yeah, that's, that, I mean, that's obviously the, the problem with the small gaps between tournaments this year and this fall, but it, it, it's like, I mean, it, to, to me, it's it's it the, the first person I do think of, though, when I think of the relationship between the pandemic and the sport this year is Novak mm-hmm. because he sort of was like 
a button at the end of the year and you know he kicked it off by winning australia obviously right. and then his tour happened in europe and and you know it's i mean that was a whole i feel like in, in a way he defined the year you know yes. in, in in good and bad ways and and it's sort of like um it because you know he he I mean, it's complicated the Europe tour because I know that you know rules were different in different places, and mm -hmm. and you know he very well may have been following you know his own countries and his own and the own and and the governmental laws of various countries. But I think if there's a bigger lesson this year, it's that what's even almost more important than the law is like your own common sense discretion, mm -hmm. because like like what's Zverev in in Paris, did he violate any rules? Absolutely not. But the fact that he could end up doing something so stupid and still not be in violation of the rules is a mark against the rules. Right. Like the rules should require temperature, should require temperature checks because who knows who could have gotten sick in that press room. Imagine sure. the person that has to come and like clean up the press room and sanitize it after every conference. Sure. And she's watching him from like the side of the room and watching this dude just casually mention that. In, in the time of a pandemic, he has a fever and he's trouble breathing. It's like, things like that. And I'm sure Djokovic wasn't breaking any rules in, in Europe and then for the Asia tour, but clearly it broke, it, it, you didn't have to break a rule for people to get sick and he tested positive. And I think Zerv did, I don't really remember. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I definitely know Zerv was told to quarantine in Europe and he didn't because then there were like that viral video of him partying. Right. Yes. I mean, that was the other thing I was going to say. He's already in a negative light because of, uh, you know, what, what he was uh, photographed doing in the Adriatic tour with Novak. Yeah. And, um, and again, I think more than anything, what it relates to is that what I love about tennis at the end of the day is there's a certain element of like really just, for the most part, decent humanity. I mean, you, you look at really the people that are the face of the game and the Nadal and Federer, and they're just really, they're humanitarians, right? Because it's um, a national sport. I think it fosters that kind of, you know, right. that kind um, of attitude, I would hope. I, I think seeing things like this, especially during this time, it's almost a blemish. I don't want to say it's a blemish on the sport, but I think that it's really, um, it's pretty crass and it's pretty careless. Um, yeah. Again, I, I would think most competitors, if they were in that position where they weren't feeling well, um, you have to think at the end of the day, your opponent or, or the people that you're in close proximity to, I mean, you could really jeopardize not only their welfare, but, but, you know, they have to go back to their families after that. Right. Um, and, and I think it was just incredibly inconsiderate. And, uh, you know, you, you brought up, brought up uh, Novak and I know we, we both, we've obviously kind of talked off, yeah. off here, our thoughts on, on Novak. And I, I really do yeah. want to try to maintain objectivity when it comes to him, because I think he is a sensational talent. And if it was only regarding talent, um, I, I would absolutely be in love with his game and, and him. Um, yeah. But with Novak, as I think certainly you can attest to, there's so much more to it than just, uh, just the game of tennis. Right. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the Adriatic Tour was, was really a failure because of, of everything that transpired and all the people got sick. Right. Um, of course, the intention... The intention, Ethan, was that it was supposed to be a very charitable event, which was going to raise money for, uh, for a great cause. Right. Um, and again, certainly like you alluded to, he did seem to follow all the protocol within his country. But uh, Novak being as divisive as he is, um, you know, given the, uh, the, the quasi half apology afterwards really didn't, yeah. didn't make you feel any better about the, the state of things. And it's just that that's that I think speaks to, to the bigger issue. And I'm curious to hear what you have to say about it. I mean, with Novak, it's not, it's not just, I mean, there's always a sense of, uh, I want to say arrogance with Novak. I yeah, mean, I think never like fair. putting a tail between your legs and just kind of apologizing and, and wholeheartedly just, you know, it, there's always, yeah, I screwed up, but A, B, C, and D, you know? I, right. I, just, I think for me, where it comes from is, I, I don't know, how long have you watched the sport? Um, I want to say, I really started getting invested, really interested in about maybe six, seven years ago. So yeah, me too. And there were so many, and 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 you know, no one. I, I haven't. There's no tennis fan that I respect or tennis commentator that I respect that tries to ignore the the off court influences on the court, mm -hmm. and and the relationship between a player's a player's 
performance off the court and their performance on the court. Because there's not, there's, I mean, I, I have, I know people that are avid Novak defenders, not just Novak fans. And a lot of those people are the same people who would never give Kyrgios the amount of slack they give Novak. And it's, right. and I think it's purely because of how much more talented Novak is, or at least how much more talented he's proven himself to be. Right. And that never really made sense to me because if you, if the, if, I mean, because when, when those people would, you know, crit- criticize Kyrgios for a lot of things he's done on and off the court, they wouldn't say, you know, he, I can't believe someone who's ranked where he's ranked is doing this. Right. They would just say that was really stupid. And I would agree with them that that was really stupid. Some things Kyrgios that that was really stupid. That was really immature. And they would describe it in this objectively, in this objective way of it being objectively blatantly immature just because it is, which would imply that no matter who acted that way, it would be wrong. But Novak has acted, you know, arrogant in a lot of times. And I know that it, people either, I, I've seen them people dismiss it in two ways. They either brush it off when he, you know, sort of, when he, it started with him, you know, making impressions of other players on the court and stuff and how that was just joking and jostling around. And that that's fine. But they would also, the, the biggest defense I hear is like, listen, he came from a war-torn country, right? He, he came, he got through a lot of, a lot of crap to be able to rise above it and make a career and break out and, 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 you know, because talent is an, and, you know, a lot of people have talent, but drive is something deliberate, right? And he had that. And I've never denied that when people have brought that up and, and talked about it. And I've never, you can't argue that those things aren't true. Of course they're true. But, and I, I think that might be where some of it comes from with him where it's not that he thinks because he's so good i don't think i don't think he's arrogant about his own talent no i think other players other players probably have been more than him even i think he is what it is is because of where he comes from any sort of drama that happens within his professional career is like he's at a thirty thousand feet you know perspective he doesn't he he like he, he i think he sort of when you've come from you know a difficult background or a difficult childhood, anything, any drama that you encounter or even maybe, you know, participate in, in your life after that, you instantly, every time make a comparison to the horrible stuff that came before. And it's almost always no contest. So you just don't care enough to address it, address what might've just happened on the court when you say, you know, hit a line woman in the throat. As, as seriously as other people do. Now, eventually he did. I know it didn't take him that long, but I do think that his instinct of like fleeing the scene basically in his Tesla right. is indicative of, again, not, it is arrogance, but I don't, I think that it's a particular type but, of arrogance. I don't think it's like, I'm too good for this. I think it's like, I have seen so much crap. I don't care enough about like, I'm just, I'm just like, this is, you know, people gossip and all that stuff. And, personality conflicts like that's that doesn't matter to me and I think he had to stop and realize with that incident at, at in New York this year that this wasn't petty gossip this wasn't a you know just a, a a manufactured drama in the New York Post it was like he injured somebody right yeah I saw people like um it it it, it made it, I think that was sort of when the the kind of people who always defend Novak it really hit like like an apex with that because it, and it really sort of drew a line in the sand because I saw someone literally tweet, she's fine. I saw people tweet things like that. I saw people suggest that she was faking it. And then I also saw people suggest that she should be fine because if she had been doing her job as a lineswoman, which is to be vigilant of where the ball is at all times, she wouldn't have been hit. Once I saw people suggest that, I, again, I hate to make things political, but this is purely, this isn't even about whether or not you agree with any particular politician, the kind of fervent just adherence to the orthodoxy of, of, of Novak and, and, his, and right. his godliness reminded me a lot of how certain conspiracy theorists and, and sectors of the American electorate on the right talk about their icon and how they will twist themselves in like a circus contortionist to defend something that is clearly indefensible and was clearly wrong or reckless or careless or, you know, because it's their guy. Right. And they will make them, and they will say things that they would never say 
to defend anybody else because it's their guy. And like, I'm a big Serena fan. I'll absolutely agree with you that she has gone overboard plenty of times. Yeah, it, 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 it's just, and I, and I think that, but, I, but again, I, I think I would cut him slack too, but not really because of how talented he is, because that never, I really am wary of defending someone just because they're talented. Personally, for me, it's like, I know, we're, because precisely like we said before, if you can't really fully separate on court from off court, then to me, where that comes in with Novak is he came from a really tough place. And so he sort of had to, has to now check himself. It's almost like, and it, you know, it, it, because it, it's like another life. It's like, you know, another planet when you, when you, now you're a professional tennis player and people know you as this, they don't might, so a lot of them might not know you as who you were before you were a professional tennis player and before you were a rock star. Right. So you have to sort of check yourself a lot and it's hard to check. Obviously one way to check yourself is to surround yourself with people who will check you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I mean, look, I, even, even, the, the the poster child of what what sportsmanship looks like roger federer i mean he right. he's you know younger roger federer oh yeah roger federer from five six seven years ago i mean roger lost his temper a little bit roger smashed brackets good. robert you know he, he cursed at some officials right it's, it's a maturity process and it's an acknowledgement that that there is i don't want to say if it's a problem but there's you know that everyone needs to grow in certain ways and I think because we've seen so many examples, and, and the example that, that you just cited with uh, with the lines judge, which you know was really really something that was terrible to watch. Right. I mean that just absolutely exemplifies a level of immaturity. Um, what my my gut reaction, not only the fact that yes, it, again, and and I think that we really should state. I certainly want to state that it was not his intention to hit. No, of course not. I don't think any, um, any anyone no one should it should imply that it is. And I think. That was part of the problem. I think a lot of times, obviously social media is not nuance's best friend. Mm-hmm. And so there wasn't a lot of you know, space for to have a nuanced discussion of like what it actually was and what happened and what he was at fault for and what he wasn't. It was more like he's either, you know, an evil villain and he always has been, or he's a misunderstood God who everyone should just bow before. And I'm like, no, it's it's somewhere in between with this thing. Right. And I mean, I think like, look, you go back to you go back to hitting her, and yes, he kind he did. He certainly went to check on her, maybe a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit slowly, but or but he's not heartless. It's, it's not about him being evil or a mean right. guy or anything like that. It's just about him being. It's not about his heart. It's about his head. I don't right. think his head is in the wrong place. And and again, I mean, he stood there on court, and he was having a rather animated, you know, discussion with the with the uh, with the judges and the umpires. And he said, but wait, she didn't go to the hospital. So, you know, why, why should I have to suspend this match? Why should I have to forfeit this match? You didn't go to the hospital. I mean, that to me speaks to really the, the insensitivity of the situation. I mean, read the room, please. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, he doesn't, again, if you, if, I think if you're, if you're and, and, and it's funny that it sounds like I'm making, it sounds like I'm making a lot of excuses for Novak, but I think it's hard to read the room when you, you're in some part of your head is still in a totally different room. Right. And, and I think, and what's funny is I saw some people argue that if it was anybody else, he, he wouldn't have gotten special treatment. And I thought, well, the special treatment he got, and, and they were saying that as in defense of him, like they, like people, they might not have ejected him at all if he wasn't Novak. And I'm like, well, no, are you kidding? If he was curious, they would have ejected him in two seconds, not 12 minutes. Not only would they have ejected him, they would have banned him. I mean, they would right. have banned him from, I don't know how it's, many it's points. because he's who he is and because he was the biggest name on the marquee that he even got 12 minutes to quote, make his case. And I mean, I don't even know about you, but my gut reaction after that incident, I said, because of the stature of Novak Djokovic, because he's number one in the world, I said, there's no way that they're gonna, that they're gonna do this. And yeah. I was almost pleasantly surprised that, that that was the outcome that they, you know, I feel again, totally did the right thing. Yeah, I think they decided uh, it before the second she was hit, they decided it. It's just that when they sent, you know, the referee out there and the referee right. and the officials out there, it was about, he's going to want to talk. Let's hear him out as long as we can. But the, we know we're defaulting him. They, they and knew. I got nervous, though. I got to be honest, I got nervous. I said, yeah, I, think that, that I don't know if he's going to compel them in some way to reverse this decision. But I said, oh, my God. In I retrospect, really... like, I should clarify, when I say that, I didn't really realize that at first. It's in retrospect that I was like, they decided it instantly. Because it is an instant default. You can look at the rule books and it says so. And it's not about intent, necessarily. It's about recklessness and carelessness. It says that in the rule book, you know. And it's like, I hear a lot of people say, 
about, you know, what's, you know, it, well, it doesn't say you can't do something in, in, in the rule, but well, right, it's about what it says you can't do. It, it's about, they, they can only go by what's written, not what's not written. And it's written there pretty plainly about this kind of thing. So I think that's, that, that's, that's the thing about Novak is his head, I think, is in a different place than a lot of people's, but it's not just because of his stature, because Federer has a similar stature and Nadal has a similar stature mm -hmm. and they're, you know, their heads are in it. And like you said about Federer, yeah, when he was essentially a child, right. he acted like a child. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in we've heard stories of, you know, his, his father and his mother saying how we basically whipped him into shape. And we said, first of all, I'm not going to take you to the courts if you're going to act like this. And right. second of all, you're just inviting your opponent to take advantage of you when you act like this. Um, so it's, and you, hear, you heard the stories, you know, similarly with, with Nadal how he was trained never, ever, ever to smash a racket. And oh, as yeah, far as I know, you can't find footage of him smashing a racket. He never had to be told. Nadal, like, you know, Uncle Tony told him from, you know, day one, he was three years old, and he handed him a racket. And he said, this is a very important, very precious, very expensive piece of equipment. Treat it with respect. It's, 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 I think that's, and I don't, I really hesitate to talk up as much as I love Nadal and Federer, when I talk them up in the same context in which I critique Novak, it sounds like I'm biased. And bias is a really weird thing. I don't think I am in the sense that, to me, when you're, I mean, I guess I am slightly in the sense that you're more likely to, my bias is who I like to watch more and who I would maybe want to hang out with more and right. who I would want to play if I ever got to play. You know what I mean? It's not so much. I think when you're when you're when you have a strong bias, when you have a prejudice, it means you would give someone you know different treatment than you give someone else for doing the exact same thing, and that I wouldn't do. I mean, you know, smashing a racket is I get I get that rule. Like it's not just about decorum; it's about frankly injury risk. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that like you know the coaching rule with Serena. I always thought that like when that happened a couple years ago, and I knew even less than I do now, you know, I always said that you don't have to know the rules of tennis to understand when you do read the rules to be able to determine whether those rules might be up for an upgrade. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, obviously rules about reckless treatment of the ball and, you know, you know causing injury to somebody, sure. um, that should stay there. And, you know, but it, but the coaching rule, I feel like at the very least, I always felt about that, especially after Serena, which again, it changed after her, just like they changed the rules about um, how maternity leave affects ranking after Serena. They right. installed, you know, they instituted Hawkeye for all calls after her, you know, the disastrous calls that were made against her. I think it was in this quarter or semifinals in the US Open against Capriati in 04. Um, Serena's been, that's why I have a little more, I, I extend a little more sympathy to Serena than I would Novak just because like, yes, he came from a rough background in many ways, she came from a rough background, but the difference is Serena's battles against societal forces didn't stop when she got on the tennis court. And I think that's sort of what sometimes comes into play when she finds herself being slighted. And the fact that it's almost always ends up, you know, the sport almost always ends up conceding that she was slighted, whether it's Hawkeye or the coaching rule or the maternity leave rule. And so like, I, I feel like at the very least, you know, may, maybe one thing that will change for the better out of, you know, the biggest story with Novak this year, because I'm always, I'm happy when these things can produce positive change for the sport. People have been calling to eliminate lines people for a little while now. Um, in the context of the pandemic and just the fact of, you know, a risk to injury and the technology is there. I mean, Roland Garros won't use it. And that's a whole other story. No. But then that drives me crazy. Very From, much oh, tra traditionalists. Yeah. It's, uh, that's exactly, I was like, it's all about tradition. And I'm just like, that's not a good enough reason when it can, it clearly affects the sport, you know, especially like if you're not used to watching tennis, and you just say, let's let's say you're you know you're an American casual tennis fan, and you'll watch the U.S. Open once a year, you know, and and then you decide to tune into Roland Garros because you're like, oh wow, this is happening sooner than I thought because of the pandemic this year, right? And you see a chair hop down every five minutes to check a mark on the clay, and you're just like, 
wait, what century are we in? I, I don't like that, that. That's the thing that's like, and, 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 you know, their resistance to adoptive technology, I think is another area of the sport that needs to evolve. Right. But I mean, what, like you said, having that at all this year, what was interesting about that is it was largely a money thing. It's always a money thing. These are corporations and Wimbledon had insurance. So they, they had no problem just canceling this year and, you know, moving to next year. Right. Um, but Roland Garros didn't. And so they needed an influx of cash, which is why they signed a new ball contract with Wilson, um, which I love how Nadal, again, I feel like people just misinterpret certain things with certain people. Maybe they do with Novak too. You know, I don't think, again, I don't think he's evil. I don't think he's a bad guy. I don't think he's a horrible role model even, because at least in this instance, right, he apologized and he checked up. And, and I think he, it is very possible that he will finally mature. I think it's a little late in your 30s to finally mature. But okay, better late than never. I don't care that much because again, I don't really care to watch him as much actually as other top players because there's just things I don't like about his style. I don't like that he slides. Okay. You know, I just, I, that, I, I see it all the time and it bothers me and I keep thinking like, I'm always told not to do that because of the injury to those areas of your body. Mm -hmm. um, He's kind of like a human Gumby on the court, which is- Right, right. Crazy. And it just doesn't, just in terms of, you know, it's like, it's like to me, what style of play and what style of player appeals to you is like, it's like anything else. It's like what movies you like and what food you like. If it agrees with your taste buds, it does. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And, 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 you know, Nadal particularly does even when, and especially, and I feel like it is partially still a language barrier with him when certain things he says are misinterpreted, like when he, I don't think was whining about the new balls at Rolling Garros this year. I think he was just, because he made very clear, he said, it's, he's like, I'm not, he said very clear, I'm not saying I'm skipping Roland Garros. I'm not complaining about its effect on my play. I'm saying because the balls are heavier, given the conditions this year, it does increase a risk of injury to the, to the elbow and the, and the, and the wrist. So, you know, that, that's what I liked about, about Nadal is that he's pretty humble and honest. And even in this final against Djokovic, I just, I just think everything they say sort of illustrates the differences between them. The way that like Novak, you know, instantly when asked about Nadal, the first thing he said was like, you know, he's my biggest rival. And they asked Nadal about that and he just goes, well, you know, we've played a lot and, um, you know, we'll see what happens. And it's just like, <laughs> that's I mean, why. It's, it's two, it's two totally contrasting mindsets. And you know what, right. the thing about, and I have to, I, I think where I would diverge with you here is that I, again, if I'm just watching tennis to watch tennis, there's something about Djokovic, Djokovic that I, I just find I'm, I'm fascinated by. Just watching from, yeah. from, uh, from a gameplay standpoint. Yeah. I mean, I've seen him, and, and to me, because tennis is such a cerebral game, yep. when, when Djokovic fell behind in the final in Roland Garros, and I mean really fell behind, and mm -hmm. he got bageled in that first set. That never happened. I, I said to myself, you know what? If there's one person that's going to come back that has the ability and the fortitude to come back, it's Novak Djokovic. Sure. I mean, I have just seen him come from behind so many times. I know you have too. You just can never, ever discount um, him coming back. I mean, there, there's just, there's something fascinating about Novak. And maybe, maybe again, maybe it's because you don't know if there's going to, there's going to be some sort of an outburst, but it's just, there's, I mean, watching him cover the amount of ground that he covers, there's a certain fluidity to, to his game. You know, in, in contrast, when I sit, when I think about um, when I think about Nadal, and Nadal is he's what 33, 34. I think they're yeah, I think they're within like a year of each other. Right. I, I Nadal, man, he's like a broken 33 or 34. Like I'm, I look at him play, and he plays with such violence and such power. I say, right. my God, he's like one injury away from from being done. I think he I mean, knows that too. And that's why he always talks about like, he, he, need, he, he feel like he needs more match play during the years sometimes. And he, and he's afraid, you know, obviously the risk it takes, it, it carries and, and, and he does play with a lot of aggression. But I, I think what was most interesting to me about Nadal in this final is how much he, re, he revealed himself to actually be, have a lot of, a lot to contribute to the cerebral part of the game because he changed, he changed tactics a lot in order to beat Novak. It wasn't just that Novak had a bad day. Like, you know, and I know that's not what you're saying, but I've heard, you know, I know a lot of Novak fans would say that. And it's like, I think that's not giving it all the credit because I think, again, there's not a lot of nuance sometimes in, in the discussion about the sport. So, you know, that's why Nadal, and when Nadal's logo is the bull, right? 
that's what he's seen as and like Federer is the brains and Nadal is, 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 is the bull. And it's like, well, no, Nadal puts thought <laughs> into his performance too. Like he, normally, for example, right, his net clearance, I think is like the highest of the big three. And there's fascinating stats on this, but like, it's like the highest of the big three. But in this, in this match, it was like lower than it had ever been before. And, you know, the ball went, it, it just, and so, and so he, he had to adjust and he adjusted. And by, I think that was one of the reasons why he was able to best Novak is because, you know, and also I like that he goes for every ball. I know that sort of like kind of style that he's ushered in and now has influenced a lot of younger players. And, you know, a lot of people think that's what leaves you one injury away from being done. Sure. But to me, I just, I love that because it's all, he pours any, all aggression into going for every ball. And like, I think that's why there's no room left for him to have any kind of outburst at any human being on the court. He just doesn't have it left in him. He puts it all into, into, into chasing down everything, every shot. Which I, I mean, I love and I admire. I mean, that's, I, I, uh, I don't hide the fact that, that Nadal is really one of my favorite players and, yeah. and for me, mainly for that reason. So, um, I mean, I, I look, it, I think that specifically regarding Djokovic, he's in a weird spot, you know, because he's like someone, I, I get the impression that he doesn't want to fully embrace the, the villain type role of tennis. I do think that, that tennis is, is more interesting if you have someone that can be like an antagonist. Um, sure, because it's what makes it, it's what makes for, I mean, drama makes for a story and the sport loves stories. Right. You'll have these, I don't know, you have these weird periods with Novak, right? Where he's, everything's going good and he's, he's kind of having these, these really sort of cheerful interviews and everything. But there's, I, I don't know, this is just me personally, there's this perfidiousness. There's this, it, like a phoniness almost about Novak. When, when yeah. Like, not to say that, that anger and, um, and, and, you know, him getting really upset, that's the real Novak, but there's something to it like, he doesn't fully want to embrace, embrace the role of villain and, and he's not the hero. So it, it's just this weird sort of cyclical pattern. Everything's going great. He's world number one. Everyone loves him and respects him. Maybe not everyone loves him, but I mean, and then it just goes back to, you know, there's, there's just this isolated incident that ends up blowing up into something really big. I mean, right. I remember, um, specifically one of the interviews that was really brought up once there was that that terrible incident with the linesman in, in the u.s open is that uh years ago and i i wish i i did my homework and i researched what the tournament was um novak novak in frustration kind of hit a ball just off to the side and it nearly you know it, it could have graced someone mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and oh yeah this was, not, this was waiting to happen in a lot of ways Right. I mean, because again, this is not the first time something like this has happened. He's gotten upset and he's kind of chucked balls into the stands. Right. He just got lucky. And I think a lot of people confuse luck with invincibility. Right. And, and so afterwards, one of the reporters asked Novak, he said, you know, Novak, you, you just, out of frustration, you hit the ball. And that really it could have come close to hitting a, a, a lines judge. Um, and the, the look of contempt in in Novak's face and the way that he answered the question is like, you're so beneath me for asking that question. Right. I, I have full control of everything I do. Why would you even begin to, to, to question my ability? Right. And sure yeah. enough, flash, flash forward a few years later, unfortunately that incident did transpire, but again, it was just this, this, he exudes a certain arrogance. Um, yeah. And that interview was obviously, that was going around a lot. And I think part of what happened was that, you know, it was, I think there really was just a, a gap, a cognitive dissonance with him about it, which can happen to a lot of people when they're at the top. Again, I don't know that it's totally about being at the top. Again, I still think it's about, there's a part of his brain that is in a different room all the time and it's back home in Serbia. And so, you know, which I totally, I feel like if I was, you know, talented enough and fortunate enough to be a professional player, you know, there, it's impossible for your head to be in one room at all times sometimes. So I get that. But again, this is a man who has suggested you can change water's molecular structure with your emotions. You know, I feel like those, those thing, things like that and being an anti-vaxxer, again, I'm not getting into the politics of it. I just think that it's not a coincidence that someone who has, thinks that way 
and is sort of disconnected from reality in so many ways is disconnected from the reality of his own performance because yeah in that interview i think it was 2016 and he said you know i don't have an issue i've done this many times before i I was like i was like dude the fact that you've done this many times before is literally the definition of having an issue there's an issue that's why this happened this year and but speaking of like you know where your head is in relation to the sport and be and how cerebral it is to me one of the my favorite success story this year was probably Igor who I hope I'm pronouncing that name correctly. I won't um, attempt to to uh, criticize your pronunciation. Here. I'm hoping that's that's. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it, I think Sviantek. I think is the. It's not. It's nothing like it's spelled. But I I, I looked it up a few times. Um, but part of part of her story that I love so much is that she has a sports psychologist with her on the road, the same way someone has a physio with them on the road at 19 and I don't like I don't remember the woman's name but like she she was being interviewed on on no challenges remaining with Ben Rothenberg it's one of my favorite people and she said how no yeah this is very this is very this is not normal usually you know when I get a call about a player it's someone calling me on behalf of the player because the player has been playing for 10 years and and finally been convinced that they need to work on the mental aspect of their game yeah. Like I think Murray needs needed needed like needed a sports psychologist. I think, and I think he ended up getting one. Um, Novak needs one. I think Sissipas needs one. Yeah. Um, but this girl, I I don't think it's a coincidence that she played so cleanly in Paris, and she and values the mental side of the game so much. And I think that's sort of it's it's sort of a great sort of button to the year. That someone who is part of part of so, such a big part of her story is how much she values the mental aspect of the game, and did so well. I mean, I don't think she dropped a set in Paris. First round against uh, Vondrusova, six one six two. Second against uh, Chia, six one six four. Bouchard, six three six two. My Pat, girl, course, Jeannie, love you, Jeannie. Six two. Uh, against uh, Trevisan, six three six one, Podoroska six two six one, and then Cannon six four six one. The amount of breadsticks she made these girls. <laughs> I, I she like looked great. She looked I great. Think, yeah, Podoroska was another one that looked great. Like came out of nowhere, and those are the kind of I, stories that I like. I mean, I like when you're you're going into a tournament, and I think that that unfortunately with the with the state of the world right now um it's kind of conducive to these weird success stories people that you wouldn't ordinarily see attain success so quickly or ever um have a chance to make a name for themselves on a big stage right i think that's what the blessing in disguise for this year is a lot of people like to attach an asterisk asterisk to a lot of tournaments this year the the few that there were um because of those extenuating circumstances and you know in in they definitely want to attach an asterisk to to the U.S. Open because of you know Federer and Nadal not being there in the first place, and then Djokovic being defaulted. But I just feel like that's an insult to the hard work that people like Team and even Zverev, who I'm not a big fan of, put into it. Like you know, it, it's not just luck. Like it, it can't be. It just can't be. They didn't just wave a magic wand and end up in a final. You know, and 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 neither did any other girl that, I don't know, didn't have to battle Osaka, who isn't necessarily, you know, it's not as if Clay's her best service. So, and, and you know, Serena. Sure. Serena said, has, is on record saying that Clay is her favorite service, but, you know, she had to bow out, I think, in the second or third round because of her Achilles tendon. So, mm-hmm. I just, like, I don't, I don't care about that stuff. It's like, I, I, I just want to celebrate, you know, kids like um, Podoroska and Sviantek because, it's just a great story. Um, and even, I mean, to me, one of my uh, favorite matches of the tournament was, of course, the most, one, the most nerve-wracking for me, which was um, Sitsipas uh, versus uh, Djokovic, who... Yes, you're um, a big Sitsipas guy. Yeah, I, 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 I just, what I love about him, and I've said this before to people, and it's like, maybe it sounds weird, but I love the way he loses. Obviously, I have a crush on him, but and that's partly why I love the way he loses. Fair but enough. I, I do because he's like, and I don't mean when he, 
you know, throws rackets at his dad, which is not what happened. I keep telling people, like, he threw it and that was wrong. And the graphite, I think, might, a piece of which is why you're not supposed to throw those things and smash them on the ground, might have hit his father. And, but the way, it, that always, the video always looked like his father was, like, ripping his arm and, 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 and jerking away before the racket even hit the ground. But to me, that was just, what that illustrated more than anything else is that there's a point where the parent as coach needs to step down. Um, and I think that's definitely true with, with, with Sissy Boss. But when I say I love the way he loses, I love like the way he'll go on Instagram after and, you know, post some photo of a skyline of the city that he's now leaving and say something, you know, uh, attempting to be existential. And it's just so cute. Um, but clearly like he cares, he cares. And there's something about how much he cares and his earnestness that, I just, I love and I can't hate. And I think that's part of the reason why he can, at, when, when Djokovic had, you know, match point in the third, when he can come back from that and almost, almost, almost beat him. But then of course, I think in the last set, his legs just gave out mm -hmm. um, of that one. And that was, it was heartbreaking. As I told you, he always <laughs> breaks my heart. You were beat up a little bit about that. Yeah, like, just like, oh my God. And, and, and it, it's like, it's always like, can he just, oh, come on. Because I think there was, I forgot which tournament it was, but there was a, a loss, I think, to Nadal that was like that for him, where he went to the press room and he just looked like he'd been hit by a truck. And God, I felt so bad for him. Um, and, I, and I, yeah, and I, and I, and I always do. But I, I, you know, but that's why I don't care whether someone wants to call him next gen or not. Or, 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 or team or anybody. It's just like, there is no- there, There's just so much. I, I, really, I, I really strongly dislike that. I mean, I, I understand from the marketing perspective where you have to start to plan for the, the future of tennis, but, right. but to, to pin titles on people like that, especially, you know, like what, what everyone's looking for is the next great like American, American player, right? At least, from our perspective, that's what they're looking at. That's what they advertise. Right. Um, and you kind of saw it with Coco Goff, which was awesome. Right. Um, when, when she burst onto the scene, but you know, she's had, had a, has a little bit of a cold spell. And right. unfortunately we're, we're in the business of, or, or, you know, the ESPNs of the world and the test channels of the world are in the business of finding what is the next sensational athlete. And I think it's almost a disservice and it's a detriment to these players because you don't really have time to grow. Look at Tiafo, right? They right. pegged him as the next great American star and he hasn't been sensational. And um, in the sport. But I mean, I think the fact that we brought up even like Goff and Osaka and Nash Fiantek and, and even, even Andreescu and, and, and um, it, it, it's like, to me, the, I mean, it's why the women's game is a lot more exciting to me now. And the men's game will be more exciting when the big three retire. It just, okay. but again, it's not like when, when people say like next gen or, pre, or, you know, in relation to the big three, they act like anyone expected the big three to happen. Mm -hmm. Like who expected three of the best in all time to be playing at the level that they're playing at the same time. Right. And to sustain that, to sustain their performances. Right. I mean, obviously, then they wouldn't be the big three. But I mean, like you said, that this is not something that is very natural. Right. Um, so it's like, it's like, it's always, it always, it amazes me. It's sort of like, I think there was a Super Bowl once where um, this, this, this really like this, this play, this call was made at like the last minute that ended up going the wrong way for that team. And everyone said it was like, the, the dumbest call ever, but if it had worked, they wouldn't have called it the dumbest call ever and just said he was lucky. They would have said it was the greatest Patriots. call ever. He yeah. Patriots, yeah. Probably, yeah. I, don't know. I think it was like 2014 or 15 and I don't watch football. Yeah. But like, it just, it just, it's how certain people I feel like talk about sports where it's like, they act like, oh, like they act like they knew this was coming in the first place. Like, let's just admit that we were, were incredibly lucky to be able to witness the rise of these players. And that when they go, they go. And who knows what can happen after that? Do I think anyone's going to win a dozen French Opens again? Probably not. Rafa, you know, Rafa, if he plays one tournament a year until he's 65, I think it's going to be a French Open. And I think he has the ability to do that, you know? Oh, he's, yeah, like you said, in, in many ways, he's maybe like one injury away from, from retirement. But right. so are a lot of them. I'm like, but yeah, definitely. If, he, if, he's, if he's where he is right now, 
and he plays next spring again, yeah, sure. He could get a 21st and a 22nd and sure. I mean, I think, I think it's, it's, I'm always wary to talk like that because of how excited I was for the last few years for Serena to like almost get 24 and then not, but that record is a lot of BS anyway, because it, you know, includes like almost a dozen Australian opens at a time when no one was going to Australia. (laughs) And, you know, there's a reason, there's a reason there's a delineation between the open era and the time before the open era. So it's, it's, to me, that record never mattered. And it bothers me how much her story is becoming her not getting 24 to the point where I almost wish she had retired when she went on maternity leave. But the other part of me is just dying for her to win like her 25th at Flushing Meadows and retire during the ceremony. Yeah. And that would be like fantastic. But that speaks to her drive. I mean, again, like you said, she could have, she could have quit. When she, you know, when she got pregnant, she could have quit. She could have said, I've accomplished everything I have. The fact that Federer is rehabbing right now and fully intends to come back next year. I mean, that speaks to their, their competitiveness as athletes. They have nothing in the sport left to prove. Right. And when people say things like, you know, why, about her sister too, why is Venus still playing when she's losing in the first round of slams? I'm like, because she loves it. Why do you think they played in the first place? It wasn't for money. I know that, yes, in their case in particular, one of the big aspects of the story of Richard Williams is how, you know, he, he, when he heard of how much money a professional tennis player could make, that was one of the motivations to train his daughters to be professional tennis players. But, you know, no one trains as hard as they did and do if they don't love the sport. So, of course, that's why she's still playing. I mean, you could even, like, like... I think of like uh, like a forty-one-year-old Evo Karlovic, right? He's not raking in the millions. He's playing two fifties right now, and he's right. he's just doing it because he has fun. Right. Um, so there are plenty of other examples in the world of tennis where it's just you know what? It's really just the love of the game, and that's it. That's the sole priority. I think Venus doesn't have to make a dime more in her career. I would imagine, with all the money that she's made, all the sponsorship money, Serena, neither. Better or not, I mean, it's just it's the love of the game, and, and I think that's what's such a compelling aspect. Yeah, I think it's, 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 it's why, I mean, I think there are a couple of players, and I forgot there was one whose name I forget, where, like, he's sort of famous for saying he really does hate it, he just does it to make money, and, I mean, sure that wasn't Curios? That, that uh, no, sounds like a direct Kyrgios. quote. No, it's not Curios. Curios, I think the way he talks about, he's honest a lot about his feelings about the sport. He said he'd rather play basketball. That's what he right. wants to do. I want to play basketball. I mean, I don't know, I, I, I go back and forth with him, I really do. Because uh, there was an interview, again, on, on NCR with Ben Rothenberg that he did that I really liked because he said, you know, there are people who, who just are mad that, it isn't the, that my job isn't the most important thing in the world to me. They're mad about it, basically, is what he was saying. And, like, they're, they're, they're mad that I don't, you know, perform in the press room the way I should. And that I don't, you know, perform defeat or perform, you know, self-examination the way that is satisfactory to them and something about that really resonated with me because i i hate when people expect that of someone just because they're 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 in a position where they where where, you know society and the press thinks they have to play a certain role right i mean you know there is no rule that says you have to have a certain attitude there isn't but i do think obviously a certain attitude is more conducive to success not. I, I really do believe that if he, and if he wanted to, I mean, I, I certainly can never get inside of his head. Um, but like I said, and like you kind of, you kind of alluded to, I think that if he maybe got some, got some help, um, you know, maybe he did talk to a, um, a sort of sports psychologist. Mm-hmm. I, I think that again, he possesses all the tools and that's everything you've heard from everyone. I mean, like John McEnroe absolutely sings his praises because again, he's immensely talented. Um, I think sometimes it doesn't really take much to get him unhinged and, you know, maybe right. unlike Novak or unlike Nadal or, you know, when, when they're in a big spot, I mean, I, I don't have a lot of confidence in watching Kyrgios come back from, from a big deficit. Um, and there are so many times, which is <laughs> one of the things I don't really care for about his game. And I, overall, I happen to do really like him um, because I think that he's, he's kind of a troll, but it's more of like, there's more frivolity and, and more lightheartedness to him than like a Djokovic per se. 
Um, but when you can tell he's just absolutely tanking, I mean, I, I really don't care to see that. I mean, that's no, just no, no, me either. And I, I think, I, th- I think that it's like it's, it's funny how we we talk about how much you know the how much the mental game is important, and then we're I think sometimes surprised when someone's an aspect of their mental game is affecting their game. Like I've, I've seen people talk in the abstract of how important the mental aspect is. But then when someone is not, they make a lot of assumptions about a player off the court. And I just, you know, the mental game is the part that we don't really see fully. That's the point. <laughs> and that's the whole, that's why it's called mental because it's not something you can see. It's something that only the player really has full insight into or their coach or their team. So I feel like, yeah, I, I probably also cut Curios too much slack because I have a crush on him too. Um, but that's a whole, that's it's bad. It's wrong. It's so wrong. It's so wrong. It's like crushing on the guy in high school. That's a complete, complete douche nozzle, and everybody knows it. And but you can't help yourself. I don't know. Um, you're but, right. I mean, I you don't want to sit here and have a conversation about Eugenie Bouchard because there's not really much in the wins department to talk about. But I I could go there with you. I mean, yeah, sure. And all right, I think I mean I think if someone's attracted to Daniel Collins, that's fine too. Um, <laughs> uh, we're just going to skip next, next. I'm trying to be as polite. On that note, I can't, this has been almost now. But on that note, um, I think, I think we can, we, we can call it a show. Sure. Um, there was a lot. We, we covered a multitude of topics here. We covered my favorite parts of 2020, um, or the most interesting parts of 2020, I should really okay. say. Um, but yeah, I don't. I don't know when we'll necessarily do this again because obviously slam season is over. But we'll we can see. always reconvene. I mean, there's going to be news. There's going to be ripples of, there of happenings and goings on. And obviously, with with the state of the world right now, there's uh, certainly things that are going to be pertaining to tournaments. Um, I mean, I, you just saw Sam Query tested positive the other day, and he kind of fled from Russia. He was in a Russian tournament. There are going to be weird little topics. I'm yeah. sure they're, that are going to come up over the course of the next uh, few weeks and few months. Yeah, so. yeah. 20, 2020, like for everything, but it seems like especially tennis is not so much a garbage fire, but it is it is a hurricane. Um, so it is. It's that's it's, an eloquent way to put it. It's it's pretty much exactly as I would call it. It's nothing if not uh, fascinating to watch. Yes. So, okie dokie. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you so much. I I had a lot of fun, and uh, I definitely want to do this again. And thank you to whoever's possibly listening to this podcast, because that, yeah. you know the idea that anyone's listening to me at all is pretty hysterical to me. And I hate the sound of my own voice. Um, well, they they would shut me off once they got to me, but no, I you don't, were great. I don't think so. Yeah, no, we'll see. Anyway, okay, so I'll I'll talk to you soon. And that was the first episode of Cross Court. Uh, find us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Give us a review. And we'll catch you next time.